invite you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. We are currently in a summer series entitled Popular Deceptions of Our Day. And the goal is to address some of the most deadly and moral deceptions, spiritual and moral deceptions that have infiltrated Western culture and specifically the United States of America. The premise of our series is something I keep stating each week because we live in a time when free speech is, has, or has fallen on hard times and if you say something that is perceived as offensive, you're viewed as saying something hateful. So the premise for the series is simply this, that it is an act of love an act of love to expose false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. That's not hate speech. It's actually love speech. Love speech is to expose false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. When you do that in a loving way, you are actually loving somebody, not hating on them, even if they don't like what they hear. The deception we're looking at this weekend and we're going to address from the book of Jeremiah has got to be one of the most common deceptions of our day. It has been for probably many generations. And it is this, that all religions are essentially the same to God. Now this is stated in a number of different ways. All paths lead to God. That's another way it's stated. Or it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Or what's true for you isn't true for me. There's lots of ways this is phrased or nuanced. But the bottom line is that all religions are the same to God. That's the deception we're looking at this weekend. I recall walking with a friend some years ago. And he was actually tutoring me in another language. And uh, at one point I was sharing the gospel with him. And he turned to me and he finally said, Jay, you know, it, it really doesn't matter what we believe as long as we're a good person, as long as we're a good person, that's the deception. We're going to turn to the book of Jeremiah today because Jeremiah, in fact, the entire Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible teaches, Jeremiah declares that merely being religious, just being sincere doesn't mean that you are being accepted by God, doesn't even mean you know God. We're not saved by sincerity. And so we're going to look at chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 today in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is going to identify key ingredients of false religion. Yes, he's going to tell us there is the right path and there is the wrong path. This is a very binary dude. He is convinced there is truth and there is error, as was Amos or Isaiah or Paul, or Jesus, or any of the other writers of Scripture. Jeremiah is telling us, in effect, all religions are not the same. I'm preaching from the NIV this morning, and the heading in front of chapter 7 in my NIV simply is the words, false religion, worthless. False religion, worthless. So with that, let's dive in. uh, Jeremiah is going to give us three ingredients of false religion I'm going to walk through these in Scripture to show us there is a right path and there are many wrong paths, and not all religions lead to God. Being sincere doesn't necessarily save you. 
And there is a kind of religion, in fact, many, that God actually hates. And so it's very important we understand what the Bible says. Now, you may not like what the Bible says. You may not like what you're going to hear. That's a different issue. But at least let us have the integrity and the honesty to say, well, this is at least what the Scripture is telling us. So three ingredients he nails. He identifies a false religion. First, he identifies that it is filled with corrupt worship. Then it is filled with conceited worship and then counterfeit worship. And we'll just take these one at a time. First, first ingredients of false religion of any kind is that it contains corrupt worship. Now, the first thing to understand about chapter 7 is you're looking at a sermon transcript. In fact, it goes into the first part of chapter 8. A lot of the prophets, when you read them, actually, they contain sermons of the prophets. That's true of Isaiah. It's true of Jeremiah. This contains part of a sermon Jeremiah preached to the people in the temple, at the temple, who were very religious. Now, one of the challenging aspects of Jeremiah is it's not arranged chronologically. So the actual background of this is Jeremiah 26, but this is the sermon preached on that occasion. These are very religious people. On the surface, these are the kinds of people, I'm just saying on the surface, that would appear to make nice suburbanite neighbors. They're very religious. These would not come across to you as kind of crazy cultist or terrorist or anything else like that. These would be conservative, temple-going, church-going kind of folks. And yet Jeremiah is going to unleash on them a stinging indictment about their hypocritical, their corrupt worship. They were specifically living one way and then coming to the temple and pretending to be something else. And that is what he's going to nail them on the carpet for. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 to begin, and then we'll just drop down a little further, and we'll see in 9 through 11, specifically as he confronts them. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, false religion is worthless. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, the divine name for God is used here. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So he's being told what to preach. Here comes the sermon. Jeremiah preaching to the people. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come to these gates to worship the Lord. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words. And say things like, well, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why were they doing that? Because they were living very differently than they were professing. And then they would rush in as if the temple was some kind of safety zone to protect them simply because they were religious. If you drop down to verses 9 to 11, he begins to nail them for very specific sins in their lives. To show you the duplicity, the hypocrisy, the corruption that's just below the surface. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, it's a false god, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, oh, we're safe. Safe to do these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. 
Friends, I would be remiss if I didn't say that is some of us here this morning. Some of us here this morning fit this. Some of us young people, some of us who are middle-aged, some of us who are older, some of us fit this. We have been living very differently than we are appearing right this minute, this morning. And God may be confronting you right now and telling you, you need to repent. You need to come clean. Don't ever think that that's a light thing for the Lord to do. He doesn't always convict. And there are times when he withdraws from his conviction. If you sense that this morning, if the Holy Spirit begins to pierce you with his word, my best advice is surrender, submit, and repent. Clearly, Jeremiah is sparing no words. He is a classic prophet. His point is, just because someone goes to a religious service, just because someone, fill in the blank, reads their Bible, has been baptized, is religious, helps the poor, is involved in social justice or serving, doesn't mean they know God. And his message is very clear. Stop playing games. Repent or you will face judgment. That's his message to all of us here today, including myself. Which brings us then to chapter 8, where now he's going to go after clergy. So let's just skip that chapter and go to chapter 9. <laughs> Yowza. No, he's going to go after the clergy. And he unleashes on the clergy. Why? Because they're more accountable for leading the people astray. No different today. No different today. We have a church in our area where one of the male pastors is married to another male. And they're telling people, this is okay. This is the kind of thing he's calling on people on the carpet for. For clergy leading people astray. Telling them demonic things, deceptive things. Brings us to chapter 8 here. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. Remember, he's going after the religious leaders here. How can you say we are wise, for now we have the law, Hebrew word there is Torah, the Torah of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes is handled it falsely. Scribes were one level of religious leaders who interpreted law and taught, so he's going after the scribes first for misleading the people and mishandling the scriptures, the Torah, and teaching false stuff, twisting it. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike. These are two other categories. All practice deceit. Notice how he phrases this. They dress the wound of my people, speaking of a spiritual wound, as if it weren't serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they not ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they don't have any shame. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. One of the things Jeremiah says over and over in his book is that one of the hallmarks of a false teacher is that they downplay the judgment of God. And they say, oh, it's not really that. But don't worry. Live your best life now. Not a big deal. Jeremiah keeps coming back to that theme over and over again. Now, what's interesting is you look back through not only biblical history, you look through church history, 
You look at the reformers, people like John Knox, John Calvin, Martin Luther, or Zwingli. You look at the Puritans. These would be folks that wrote in the 15, 16, 1700s in England and America. All of them spent significant time talking about the dangers of what they would call the unconverted minister. That means the unsaved pastor. It was something that got a fair amount of press and attention in the past that we don't hear much about today. Classic example, this is a passage I've quoted several times throughout my ministry. It comes from Richard Baxter, who was one of the best-known London preachers in the 1600s. This was not some obscure academic. This was a very popular preacher in, in, in England. And he wrote a book that's become a classic called The Reformed Pastor. In his opening chapter, he talks to clergy. The oversight of ourselves. And he offers blunt words to clergy. Quote, many a preacher is now in hell. God never saved anyone simply for being a preacher. Alas, it is a common danger and calamity of the church to have unsaved and inexperienced preachers and to have so many men who become preachers before they are Christians. Close quote. So corrupt worship, something that looks one way on the surface, but right below the surface, very different story. It's hypocrisy, there's deceit, there's corruption, there's moral perversion, there's deception. It's not what it appears. Corrupt worship. First hallmark of a false religion, meaning not all religions are the same. There is a kind of religion God hates. Second aspect of false religion is conceited worship. Chapter 9. Conceited, pride-filled worship. Although Jeremiah's sermon and prophetic oracles are aimed specifically at a wide range of sins. Here he nails the people on their pride, their conceit, and specific, their arrogance for assuming they have an in with God simply because of who they are ethnically. This is a false confidence that all is well between them and God when clearly it's not. And so he declares here that spiritual pride and their self-righteousness were deceiving and destroying them. And he's going to nail them on three things. First, they were filled with pride and just stubbornness and disobedience. This is in verses 13 and 14, chapter 9. The Lord said, it is because they have forsaken my law that I've set before them. That's deliberate disobedience. They would sit and hear what was declared and then go out and live the exact opposite. They have not obeyed me, followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. Maybe you've gone out and worshipped Baals, false gods, as their ancestors taught them. And so he goes on to declare judgment on them for their stubbornness, pride, disobedience. Next, in verses 23 and 24, he nails them for being proud about their financial and their intellectual resources. Verse 23, chapter 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Let the one who boasts Boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises, note these words, here's what God loves, kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these, what's he say? I, I love, I delight in these. What does God delight in? It's a good thing to be reminded of. He delights in kindness, 
justice and righteousness. Exact opposite of what was found in these people. They were proud of their financial and intellectual resources. And the third thing is they're proud of their circumcision. They're proud of their religious heritage, their religious rituals. They figured they did certain things, they were automatically good to go. Much like people today might put undue emphasis on, oh, I was sprinkled as an infant, or I was confirmed in my church, so I'm good to go. Jeremiah says otherwise, verses 25 and 26, chapter 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. So just because they had this mark from the Lord or just because you were sprinkled as an infant or were confirmed or went to seminary or whatever doesn't mean you're automatically in with God, doesn't mean you're good to go. Then he says, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness and distant places. For all these, nati- all these nations, and a lot of these peoples were circumcised, are really uncircumcised. And the whole house of Israel, notice the phrase, is uncircumcised in their heart. Doesn't matter what the outward ritual. They were putting a whole huge, em- big emphasis on some outward ritual. And he says, well, it's done nothing for your heart. James 4, 6, if you know your Bible, God opposes the proud, and he will bring them down, but he shows favor to the humble. So they had corrupt worship, and then they were filled with pride and arrogance. They had conceited worship, and then lastly, counterfeit worship. This is actually worshiping something other than the true God. That doesn't mean that all of them were bowing down to idols. You can worship idols in other ways than just something that's carved out. It's putting anything ultimately in the place of God in your affections, in your time, in your money. When you direct it to something, you can sit in a Bible-preaching church and be a total idolater because the living God is really not your whole focus in life. Your money, your time, your energy goes to something else with more gusto than the living God. But here he goes after them just for their blatant idolatry. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Hear what the Lord says to you people Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the people are, what? Worthless. I'm talking about the religious practices of the people. The, practice, the religious practices of the people are worthless. Why? Well, you're cutting down trees in the forest. Now, if you wonder, does the Bible ever use sarcasm? <laughs> Here it is. They're cutting down trees in the forest, and the craftsman shapes it with a chisel. Then they adorn it with silver and gold and fasten it with hammer and nails so it won't fall over. And like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols can't speak. They have to be carried because they can't walk. That's mockery. That's sarcasm. He's making fun of their false gods. So that tells me you can be very sincere and be sincerely wrong. You can be very sincere and be spiritually doomed. Verse 11, chapter 10. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Hence, go back to verse 6. No one is like you, Yahweh. You are great 
Your name is mighty in power. Young people, what's the Bible saying here? Challenge you a minute. What, what, is, what is clearly being said here? And it is this. There is truth and there is error. There are false religions. There is the right path and there are wrong paths. There is truth and error. Again, you may not like this, but that's what's being said. There's no such thing as, oh, what's true for you may not be true for me. That's biblical nonsense and that's logical nonsense. Unfortunately, logic has fallen on hard times in our day. But that's exactly what it is. That's pluralism. That's the belief somehow schizophrenically that, oh, multiple things can all be true in the same universe, and they're all true even if they all contradict each other. That's demonic is really what it is. It's demonic. A number of years ago, uh, there was a TV show, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, that's the highest leader in the Anglican church, was on a television program of all, with all people with Jane Fonda. Now, some of you don't know Jane Fonda, who she is, some of you do, but she is the quintessential, uh, you know, feminist leader of days gone by. They were on this show together, and they were kind of going at it a bit, and the archbishop was stressing the importance of Jesus for the modern world and as the son of God, and Jane Fonda, when he got done, just shrugged and said, basically, whatever. And the archbishop said, well, he is the son of God, you know. To which Jane Fonda looked back and said, well, perhaps he is to you, but not to me. And to the archbishop's credit, he looked back and said, either he is or he isn't. Either he is or he isn't. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Personal story. A number of years ago, I was an intern at one point in ministry. And I was teaching, I was taking our youth group, I was in charge of teaching the youth that summer, and I was taking the youth group through a series on world religions and cults. Well, word of this reached a, the owner, owners of a resort in our area who happened to be in one of these cults. And they got a hold of me and said they'd heard this, that I had identified their particular uh, group as a cult and wanted to know if that was true, and if it was, would I be willing to come out to their resort and have lunch? I said, okay. So I go, I go, I go out there, and it's, it, it was interesting. It was quite the resort. Um, and the owner dressed a little bit like, kind of like, kind of like Colonel Sanders, all in white, or if you've seen Jurassic Park, John Hammond, the, white, the whole white outfit with the white straw hat. He had the whole white thing going. The white hat, the white cane and everything. And uh, so we're having a very uh, civil lunch, talking about stuff. But then he finally got down to business. Like, I understand you've identified our, our, our group as a cult. And I said, well, any group that holds these kind of views about Jesus has to be identified ultimately as not biblical. And Well, things started getting a little heated. And he finally backed away, I still remember this, and he stood up and he pointed down at me and he said, young man, this is the way he said it, you better learn to quit criticizing other people's religions. He said, uh. And he said, then he went on and he said, I put all the world's religions together. Then he swore at me and he said, that's a good religion. 
and the lunch didn't go on a whole lot longer. <laughs> I thanked him for his lunch and exited. But that's the ethos here, that somehow all religions lead to God, that they're all the same in God's eyes. You can read your Bible. You can't find that anywhere. Certainly not true for Amos or Isaiah, Jesus, Paul, or Jeremiah. I want to turn to one New Testament text, I think, that is one of the most binary passages in the Bible, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, a letter from Paul, chapter 6, where he issues a very clear reminder there is light and dark, there is truth and error. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6 in your New Testament, I encourage you to turn there, I want you to see this, verses 14 to 18. corollary verse to this would be what was read this morning by Tony, which was Jesus saying in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may say, I don't like that, I hate that. That's a different issue. The point is, there's every reason to believe biblically and even just at the textual veracity of the Greek text there that Jesus said those words. Nobody doubts that he said those words. question is, are they true? But we at least can be honest, that's what he claimed. And here you got Paul doing basically the same thing, not about himself, but about Christ and truth and error. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, one of the most binary texts in our Bible. The Apostle Paul writes this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? That was a word. Baal comes from Hebrew word that means treacherous or worthless. In Paul's day, it had become a formal title for Satan. So what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Ladies and gentlemen, remember years ago, R.C. Sproul touching on this passage, and he said, this passage teaches the law of non-contradiction. And he reminded us, Aristotle did not invent the law of non-contradiction. He popularized it, as others did, but he didn't invent it. God invented the law of non-contradiction, that two contradictory propositions cannot both be true in the same sense at the same time. If one is true, the other can't. Now, they can both be false, but they can't both be true. And so Paul, like Jeremiah, certainly did not believe that all religions are the same. And yet, as you look again over the last, especially the last 100 years, you have a growing number of liberal theologians in Western culture that have argued the exact opposite. One of the most infamous was Paul Tillich. I've mentioned his name occasionally. He's one of the very few, by the way, religious leaders in the last century that made the front of Time magazine. And that's a very small group, very elite group, so to speak. Uh, Martin Luther King, Carl uh, Barth, Billy Graham, Harry Emerson Fosdick, Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich came from Germany, 
And he ended up in the United States eventually teaching at Harvard. In fact, he became university professor at Harvard, which means he held a very elite status there. He could teach anything he wanted. He could teach as much or as little as he wanted. And they paid him above everybody else. And they were just glad he was there to put their, his name on the marquee. That's his status. And he made the front of time. He eventually finished his career here in Chicago, University of Chicago Divinity School. Extremely liberal theologian. Morally perverted individual who eventually lost complete confidence in the Bible and gave up a belief in a personal God. His three-volume systematic theology, which I own, has less than 12 verses of Scripture in it. What's interesting is at the end of his life, he gave a lecture right before he died, and he said that he wished he could redo all of it and start his career differently. He said, if I had time, I would rewrite that abysmal systematic theology, and I would incorporate all the world's religions. The problem with saying that, friends, is all religions don't teach the same thing. They can't all lead to God because they are fundamentally at odds. If I were to take proponents of each, adherents of each major religion, put them behind me, they would tell you that. I know because Becky and I have had the privilege to talk with Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and Buddhists and Jehovah's Witnesses. If there was a Hindu up here, he would, they would tell you they believe in many gods, Hundreds and millions of gods. And they believe in transmigration of the soul. You can come back in any other form. That's orthodox Hinduism. If you had a Muslim up here, he'd say, no, 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 I believe in one God. Muhammad was his final prophet. Jesus is not the son of God. And the Quran is his final revelation to mankind. A Mormon would say, no. Mormonism believes that any Mormon male can become a god, have his own planet and his own harem. And that Joseph Smith was his final prophet. The Book of Mormon is his final revelation. You can't reconcile that with Hinduism or Islam. They would tell you that. Buddhism, Orthodox Buddhism, Theravada, Tibetan, Zen, denounce a belief in any god. The Dalai Lama says there is no god. So it's atheistic. Whereas Jehovah's Witnesses, very sincere people, believe Jesus is not God. He didn't die on a cross. He didn't rise from the dead. There is no way to reconcile all of those. They are absolutely contradictory and at odds with each other. And the bottom line, friends, young people, please hear this. The bottom line is we have to make a choice. Jesus was clear. Paul was clear. Proverbs says, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to someone, but in the end it leads to death. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit says in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceitful spirits and things taught by demons. That's why in 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah said to the people who were waffling back and forth between worshiping the living God and Baal, false god, Elijah said, chapter 18, 1 Kings verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But they both can't be right. Somebody's wrong. Or lots of people may be wrong. All right, what's our summons this morning? Two groups. Number one, if you're not sure you've surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus never said following him was only about making a choice or decision. He talked about surrender, being all in. The Greek word pastuo, I believe, means all in. All in. And Jesus is very clear when he said, unless you believe I am, meaning God in human flesh, you'll die in your sins. There's only two ways to die, in the Lord or in sin. 
One goes to heaven, one to hell. The Bible says if we want to be right with God, and I challenge you today, if you're not sure you know Christ, Jesus said you have to repent and believe the good news. He said that in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the good news. This week as I was studying, I came across one of the best definitions of repentance I've read in a while from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in London. Repentance means you realize you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, and that you're hell-bound. It means you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook, as well as its practice. You deny yourself, take up your cross, and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest, and indeed the whole world may call you a fool, or say you have gone religious, uh, have religious mania, you may have to suffer financially. It makes no difference. That is repentance. And secondly, I appeal to those who profess to know Christ. I want you to hear this. I'm going to take a moment to frame this. You claim to know Christ, but you've gotten careless about obedience issues. Okay? You say, oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm born again, I'm a follower, but you've you become careless. Here's my challenge to you. Are you sure you're saved? You look at, well, what are the evidences you've gotten careless? You've lost your joy, you lose your passion for God, his blessing is removed from your life. It could be any number of things that lead to this. You may be refusing to tithe. Some of us here are saying, I'm not, I'm not tithing my income. I'm not giving 10% of, even though, even though I'm, it's an issue of obedience, I'm not going to do that. Or, 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 that's the minimum. Maybe you're messing around with pornography or neglecting your Bible or abusing alcohol. Maybe you're having sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend and you know that's, that's a sin. Maybe you're not honoring the Lord's day, the Sabbath, and keeping the entire day holy unto the Lord. Maybe you're refusing to get baptized. We can fix that one next weekend. Right over here. I hope some of you will say, you know what, it's time for me to do this. As an example, to my family, my kids, I need to do this and get right and do what's obey. Maybe for you the issue is gluttony or stealing or lying or refusing to forgive somebody. Maybe your yes and your no are no longer meaningful. Maybe you're angry at God. Maybe you're cheating on your spouse. I don't know. But you've gotten careless. God is reaching out today and saying it's time to come back and repent. You really claim to know him. Jeremiah is filled with these kinds of affirmations. And one of my favorite comes from the prophet Zechariah, who simply put it this way. I love this. It's beautiful. Zechariah 1.3, return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. That's the appeal to anyone here today who has drifted and gotten careless. Pastor Doug, lead us.